I'm Bill Romanelli, and welcome to A California Affair. In this episode, we have part two of A Perfect Storm of Tax Reform, where we dive into the not one, not two, but three tax reform proposals on the November ballot. At the center of them all is the Taxpayer Protection and Government Accountability Act, which its supporters say closes a loophole in state law concerning how local governments can raise taxes, and which opponents say will have a catastrophic effect on public safety, democracy, and California's economic future. Last time, we heard from the opponents. In this episode, we hear from John Kupal, president of the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, which is one of the primary organizations in support of the measure. I'm very pleased to have him on the podcast, so let's get right to it. John, thanks very much for for joining us today. Appreciate you being here. Pleasure to be here. How you doing, Bill? Doing very well, thank you. So let's just, before we dive into the the issues here at play, I wanted to just have you tell folks who may not know just a little bit about uh, the Howard Jarvis Taxpayer Association. You've been around since the 70s advocating for taxpayers and taxpayer rights. So just kind of give us the the elevator speech on, on what the association is and does. Sure. We were formed by Howard Jarvis, who was the really the instigator of the modern tax revolt movement in 1978. Uh, at the time, California's property taxes were way out of control. People were literally being taxed out of their homes. And uh, so he had tried several times prior to 1978 to get property tax relief and was not successful. And uh, and then in 1978, with with a, a lot of help from a, a whole bunch of people, he put on the ballot again. And what was interesting, Bill, is that Prop 13 at the time was opposed by every other organization out there, including business, education, labor. All the editorial boards were against it, and yet it passed by 66%. So, so the, the association itself... Um, it was formed by him to really maintain the legacy and to protect Proposition 13, and we've been doing that since 1978. We are the California's largest taxpayer advocacy organization. We have 200,000 members, mostly just grassroots homeowners. Um, we don't have a lot of major corporations. We have some uh, owners of small unit apartments, like four, six units. Howard Jarvis himself was the executive director of the Apartment Association of Greater Los Angeles. So we do have that connection with uh, small, uh, the owners of small family-owned mom-and-pop apartment buildings. And, um, and of course, we have uh, our membership, uh, our bread-and-butter membership really is uh, people, a lot of seniors who are on fixed incomes for whom being able to keep their homes <laughs> is really, really important. Since 1978, our membership base has kind of changed a little bit. We still have those members, and they're overwhelmingly the majority of our members. But we now have a, a pretty fair sprinkling of what I call movement conservatives and libertarians and people who just believe that government, uh, particularly government in California, is way too big. So this is what we do. Um, we know we have uh, several uh, affiliated entities People know us for the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. We also have a foundation, the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Foundation, a 501c3 organization uh, that can take tax-deductible donations. It does all of our litigation, and at any one time, we've got about 20 different lawsuits going on. 
we have two initiative committees and we have political action committees. So we're trying to hit all the all the bases in terms of advocacy. Come a long way since it was just Mr. and Mrs. Jarvis out there doing it on their own, sounds like. <laughs> That's right. So I was uh, eight years old when Prop 13 passed. And I remember my parents, that was a, a hot topic in our house when that was on the ballot. Let's jump into one of the latest issues that uh, you're working on, which is the Taxpayer Protection and Government Accountability Act. This is going to be on the ballot in November of this year. So tell us a little bit about what this measure is and, and what problem it's trying to solve. Sure. Well, the problem it's trying to solve is closing the many loopholes that were created in Proposition 13. You know, as I said at the outset, um, Howard Jarvis formed the organization to protect Proposition 13, and this has required us to come back several times and propose new initiatives to fill the loopholes or, or try to plug the loopholes created by the courts. And most of the action has been done by the court, some by the legislature, Mm -hmm. but uh, we have, there's been this tug of war between tax raisers and taxpayers over the provisions of Proposition 13 since 1978. We had to come back in 1986 with something called Prop 62 called the Right to Vote on Taxes Act, and then in 1996 we had another act also called uh, the Right to Vote on Taxes Act, which was a constitutional amendment that dealt with things called benefit assessment districts, which were then being created to bypass the restrictions of Proposition 13. Mm -hmm. And we supported the business community in their fight over Proposition 26, which was designed to close that loophole and provide clarity to what is a tax and what is a fee. In other states, Bill, it doesn't make a lot of difference what you label something. It's just you can call it tax or fee. But in California, there are certain voter approval requirements that mm-hmm. adhere to taxes that don't apply to fees. Mm-hmm. So Prop 26 was an attempt to provide clarity to that area. Again, immediately shot full of holes by the courts. So that's another thing the Taxpayer Protection Act is trying to correct. So uh, the Taxpayer Protection Act is... The taxpayers' response, and by the taxpayers, I mean grassroots taxpayers as well as the business community. We're very pleased to have as major partners in this effort the California Business Roundtable, the California Business Properties Association, Mm -hmm. NFIB, National Federation of Independent Business. We have a pretty fair panoply of pro-business groups, pro-grassroots taxpayers, and, and I think it is a very good effort. And uh, the act itself does quite a few things. It has four major elements. One of the provisions of Proposition 13 was that any tax increase passed in the legislature would have to get a two-thirds vote. And since 1978, that has not been a problem because Republicans had at least a third or more Mm -hmm. and they could stop anything. Well, that all stopped with the very unpopular gas tax a few years ago Mm -hmm. when that was jammed through with a two-thirds vote. Mm -hmm. So the authors of, and we helped draft this uh, Taxpayer Protection Act, said, okay, in addition to requiring two-thirds vote of each house of legislature, the tax also has to be ratified at a statewide vote. And this is for state taxes, not local taxes. A statewide vote, and uh, not two-thirds, simple majority of the statewide electorate. And um, that provision polls so favorably. I think this is one of the reasons that the political left has just gone 
ballistic over the Taxpayer Protection Act, going so mm-hmm. far as to even file a lawsuit to try to get it taken off the ballot. Right. But I'll get to that in a moment. But other provisions are, is that we finally provide some requirements about ballot transparency. We have seen over and over again ballot measures that have these glowing titles, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. protects essential governmental services, and they never mention the T word. This is particularly true at the local level. And so one of the things that we require, again, that seems common sense and polls very well, and that is if there is a measure on the ballot that proposes a tax or fee increase, The ballot label itself has to say tax or fee increase. It's very simple. There's got to be some truth in advertising here, which which Mm -hmm. the the government forces have been able to circumvent for all these all these years. The other thing is another uh, provision that is polls very high is that in California, and this issue is also at the federal level, Mm -hmm. you have administrative agencies engaging in not only just lawmaking power, but also imposing taxes and fees that have not been expressly approved by the California legislature. So one of the things that we say is that any tax or fee increase that is sought to be imposed by some administrative agency Mm -hmm. has to get the imprimatur of some legislative body, be it a local city council, a board of supervisors, or the legislature itself. No longer can administrative agencies impose fees without some sort of political accountability. And at the federal level, this is, you know, I don't want to get into the weeds too much here, but this is what the underlying Chevron doctrine fight is before the Mm -hmm. California Supreme Mm -hmm. Court, you know, having to do with, you know, deference to agencies. And I Mm -hmm. think people are coming around to the fact that the administrative state in America, and in California in particular, is way too strong. And the legislative bodies need to start reasserting their control over the lawmaking power. So we have that provision dealing with prohibiting inappropriate delegation of tax-raising power to administrative agencies. You sit in focus groups and you talk to people about this, and they're like, yeah, Duh. I mean, it, it's, it's amazing um, how the elements of this pulled very well. Um, it has uh, uh, other provisions um, uh, relating to uh, local taxes. One of the things that really spurred the drafting and the sponsorship of the Taxpayer Protection Act mm-hmm. was a horrible U.S. Supreme Court decision called Upland that took the two-thirds vote requirement for local special taxes and, and basically eviscerated it by saying, well, if a local special tax, which is designed for specific purposes, is advanced by an initiative, then the whole two-thirds vote doesn't apply. Right. Well, immediately, I mean, when we handled that case, we said, do you know what you're doing? You're, you are just ripped a hole in the two-thirds vote requirement and turned 40 years of Prop 13 law on its head. And they said, well, and, and they weren't really that direct. They just kind of implied it. Uh-huh. Well, the courts of, the lower courts of appeal have just jumped through the breach and imposed all these local special taxes, uh, uh, permitted local special taxes without the two-thirds vote. So one of the things that we do is we provide an upland fix. This mm-hmm. is the name of the case, the upland case. And it would require that any upland tax imposed after January 1st, 2022, if it got less than a two-thirds 
more than a majority and is for a special purpose would have to, it's not invalidated, it just would have to be ratified by voters in a subsequent election. I think it provides a lot of robust protection uh, for California taxpayers, which has been missing. There's a couple of questions that you know I hear a lot, especially uh, maybe going a little bit down a level into the special versus the general tax. So if local city councils or county governments want to pass a general tax, right now that threshold is 50 plus one uh, right. to pass it. If it's a special tax, it's got to be, uh, again, unless it's a citizen's initiative, if it's put on by the local government itself, it has to pass by two-thirds. A lot of people are asking me, and maybe you can shed some light on this, that almost seems backwards to some people. Why shouldn't it be a higher threshold for a general tax where money can be used any way governments want to versus a special tax where it's being earmarked for specific purposes? I think that's a great question. It's the same question we get all the time. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind that that was not a provision in the original Prop 13. Mm-hmm. That was that was a direct result of, again, a court decision mm-hmm. where the Rosebird Court said that the two-thirds vote for special taxes would not apply to any tax placed into a general fund. So the one of the first things we did when we got that ruling, that was called the Farrell decision, is we said, okay... We need at least some sort of voter approval. So let's at least subject general taxes to a simple majority vote because it's better than nothing because during that interim, the local governments were just jamming taxes with no vote at all. Mm-hmm. That was a Band-Aid, uh, basically. And, uh, but it wasn't the intent of Howard Jarvis or Paul Gann. In fact, their intent was to subject everything to a two-thirds vote. So, and then if you want a, what I will call a post hoc rationalization mm-hmm. For the policy, you could you could say that it helps to deter ballot box budgeting or just airmarking, mm-hmm. which is true. Mm-hmm. But that was not Howard's intent. Howard's intent was uh, uh, two thirds vote. Gotcha. Okay. And so that brings up the uh, a related question. And it seems to me one of the more controversial aspects of of this proposal is that it's retroactive to 2022. And and why 2022? And and do you think that is an area where it could be vulnerable. I know the Supreme Court in California is looking at that. It's not technically retroactive. What it does it is it has backward-looking effect. In other words, and we did this with Prop 218. We did the same thing. Mm-hmm. We said non-compliant benefit assessment districts would have to come into compliance by a specific date in the future. That's never been challenged, and many laws have that provision. A lot of laws have prospective application and saying, after this date, certain things have to comply. The reason we did that is because we filed around the 2020, and what we didn't want is for it to become effective after it passed, because in the interim, local governments are just jamming these taxes, thinking they can get in under the wire. The The whole thing was designed to prevent them from exploiting a situation that they knew they were on legally shaky ground. Mm, okay. And I've heard that, you know, going to the Supreme Court now, so they have agreed to look at it. What is the timeline for, for their evaluation of this, from what you know? We have received the uh, legislature. The lawsuit was filed by the governor and the legislature of the state of California, which surprised me because these are the same people that are saying we've got to protect democracy, and their argument is that we shouldn't allow voters to vote on this thing. That's a little bit uh, ironic. Mm. 
and cynical, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. But we have finished the briefing. We've got the government's brief, and all the amicus briefs were due at midnight last night. I've got a stack of them I'm going to have to review and go over with our uh, legal team. We have a very broad legal team with many law firms looking at this. Many business interests are very interested in getting this done. And uh, so we're going to have, I'm very happy with the with the brief that uh, we wrote. Mm-hmm. And um, I've read some of the amicus briefs on our side, and they're also very good. At its core, the fundamental argument of the government legislature is extremely weak. Their their argument is that somehow the Taxpayer Protection Act is some sort of unlawful revision of the Constitution mm-hmm. as opposed to merely an amendment. But Taxpayer Protection Act doesn't cut any tax. It doesn't restructure government. It's the latest in a long history of constitutional controls over the taxing power. And so I think proponents know that they're grasping at straws a little bit here, but if we get a fair shake before the California Supreme Court, I think we win hands down. My concern is that the case will be resolved more by politics mm-hmm. than by legal merits. I don't think that'll happen because I know that the Supreme Court is very progressive, but we're still going to give them the benefit of the doubt because if this were a close question on the law, mm-hmm. I'd be more concerned. But I, th- I think on the law, we have an extraordinarily strong case. I, for one, have to say I was a little surprised by the level of opposition to this. And, you know, based on what you're talking about, Prop 13, you know, that's not a new phenomenon for you to, to face that kind of opposition. But uh, it sounds like you're in for a fight on this, you know, especially I've, I've heard now that SEIU is going to make this their main issue for the year ahead. What do you think that means for the effort on your end? Well, as I said, it's a very strong product uh, and it polls extremely well. And if you ask Californians right now whether they believe they're undertaxed or overtaxed, I can tell you where 90% of Californians are. And, they, and there is a broad perception based in, on reality that California is functionally overtaxed. Uh, we have the highest income tax rate in America, highest state sales tax rate in America, highest gas tax, and even with Prop 13, we rank 19th out of 50 states in per capita property tax collections. Then you have all these other taxes, even on property, things like parcel taxes. Parcel taxes make up about $8 billion mm-hmm. of local government revenue. Bill, this is one of the reasons people are leaving the state of California. They're overtaxed, they're overregulated. California has the highest poverty rate in America when cost of living is taken into effect. And I believe we now have the second highest cost of living. We were just surpassed by uh, Hawaii, but mm. uh, obviously for reasons that's an outlier. Right. So let's talk about, you know, in addition to the Supreme Court challenge by the governor and the legislature, they've also put a couple other measures on the ballot uh, as kind of uh, additional, shall we say, obstacles or, or potential workarounds on the Taxpayer Protection Act. One of them is ACA-1, which makes it easier for local governments to raise taxes, and the other one is ACA-13, which requires basically your measure to pass by a two-thirds vote or can't take effect. Take those one at a time and kind of give me your thoughts on them. Well, ACA-1, I think, will be fairly easy to defeat because Prop 13 still is very popular. If Prop 13 were on the ballot today, our benchmark polling tells us it would pass by about the same 60%. And ACA 1 is clearly a direct attack on Proposition 13. It revises some critical provisions of Prop 13 by lowering the two-thirds vote for special taxes and bonds Mm -hmm. uh, for anything related to infrastructure. And I've heard that some of the proponents of ACA 1 and some of the uh, Democrats realize that ACA 1, as currently written, Mm -hmm. is a bridge too far 
and there's been discussion that they're going to have to revisit it, pull it off the ballot, and rewrite it. I don't know whether they'll make it worse or better. I've heard that the latest version of ACA 1 may not be what actually appears on the ballot. Where I think the government interests overreached on ACA 1 is that they not only went after Prop 13's special tax provision, Mm -hmm. but they also uh, repealed the provision of the state constitution that requires a two-thirds vote for local general obligation bonds. That Mm -hmm. provision has been in the state constitution since 1849. Wow. And they're gutting that. And that's not Prop 13. Mm-hmm. And the reason we have a two-thirds vote for general obligation bonds is because only property owners repay those bonds. That's why that's been in there. And they're going right after that. So I think in a large part, that's a bridge too far on that one. Uh, ACA 13 is a very convoluted provision that said if there is a provision if there's a proposed initiative that somehow imposes some sort of vote requirement above simple majority, then it itself must pass by that same margin. Mm-hmm. First of all, I wouldn't want to be them trying to explain this to ordinary voters because, number one, it's too clever by half. Mm-hmm. We get what they're trying to do. But best argument against that is this would be the first time any proposed constitutional amendment has been required to pass by more than a simple majority. We've had hundreds of initiatives since 1911, and they've all required a simple majority vote. And trying to superimpose this requirement on just one sort of constitutional amendment, a constitutional amendment that seeks to restrict the taxing power, we tell that to audiences, and I think their eyes are going to, you know, number one, they're incensed. Mm-hmm. But again, for ordinary voters who may not be conservative or taxpayer advocates trying to explain what they're doing. I I mean, the the best retort is if you don't like Taxpayer Protection Act, run your campaign against it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to do this ACA 13. That's a cynical move by politicians in California. You don't like taxpayer protection, then go ahead and face it head up and argue the merits. The reason they're a little hesitant to do that is is because they've seen the same polling we have on these elements about voter approval of statewide taxes, about transparency, about unlawful delegation of the taxing power. It's something that's going to prove to be very uh, popular. Now, we don't know, mm-hmm. Bill, you and I, you know, we've been in the business for a long time, but and we don't know what the voter turnout model is going to be in November. Right. It could depend on who's on the ballot and uh, a variety of things. Though Nothing is guaranteed, but we fi- feel as though we're in a fairly comfortable spot. And so going back to the voters, you know, just a couple of questions on that. So what are the scenarios of what happens? Say, say your measure passes by 64%, but then ACA 13 also passes by, you know, 50% plus one. So does that mean automatically that your measure does not take effect or how does it, does it get resolved through the courts? What happens next? The case law on this issue is when there's a clear conflict, the uh, initiative with the higher, higher vote total uh, prevails and the other one mm doesn't become effective. We saw this with some of the criminal justice Mm -hmm. measures Mm -hmm. where, and we saw it with some of the insurance measures when there were like eight insurance majors, you know, the court had to weave through what's what's in direct conflict, what isn't. As it relates to uh, ACA 1, clearly there's there's a uh, there's a a conflict. Mm -hmm. As to ACA 13, I think I think we could easily make the argument that the expression of voter intent to get those kinds of protections would prevail over an attempt to try to superimpose a supermajority requirement 
on something that's on the ballot at the same day. I mean, that that's you can tell how confusing this yeah, is, yeah. but again, I, th- I think we've got a strong substantive argument on that point. That's the next question I have is, what's your advice for voters trying to navigate through all of this? Because it is very confusing. I mean, even you and I talking about it, it's my eyes are starting to cross a little bit. Your average voter has a pretty good meter on BS, you know, and I think some of these things, uh, some of the commercials that they're going to run, and and I've got to say, the League of Cities used to be a fairly legitimate organization advancing the interests of municipalities in the state of California, but they've gone way out on a limb on this and expressed incredible untruths about Taxpayer Protection Act. I don't think they're going to get away with it, but it shows how the League of Cities has morphed from a advocacy organization for municipalities into a very quite powerful political operation. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we're going to argue to voters is that uh, where are your tax dollars going at the local level? Are, Are your cities members of the League? And how much are they paying in dues to undercut your interests as taxpayers. So I think I think that's one message we're going to put out there. The other message is we're, we're going to tell voters to just read the initiative. Mm-hmm. And on ACA 13, if you can't understand what they're trying to do, which a lot of people can't, mm-hmm. then that's a good reason to vote no. Mm-hmm. But on the simple elements of the Taxpayer Protection Act, we feel that the voters will be able to understand it. Really appreciate your time again, John. Uh, very informative. You know, it's going to be a very interesting uh, campaign season, you know, for a variety of reasons. But, uh, you know, all the measures dealing with tax reform certainly going to be part of the mix on that. Any final thoughts? I'll give you the last word. Yes, I do have a final thought. For those of us who uh, moved to California a few decades ago, and we love this state. It's a state worth fighting for. We are saddened to see the number of people who have bailed out of the state. Many of my friends moved to Tennessee, Texas, Florida, Montana, Idaho, uh, and Nevada. People bailing out of the state in very large numbers. What's most troubling to me is that demographers have projected that without significant change in public policies, California after the 2030 election will lose five more representatives in Congress. We already lost one last Mm -hmm. census. We probably should have lost two if it had been a fair uh, census, but we lost one. Texas is picking up those representatives, Florida, and if California loses five more, I mean, it's a reflection of population then that's less political influence California has as a state in Washington, D.C. People need to be concerned about that, and people need to be concerned about trying to save what's left of this state because it has so many wonderful attributes, and we love it here, but, you know, I think everybody has their breaking point. So hopefully the Taxpayer Protection Act will be the first step to turn things around. Well, you've been a fantastic guest, uh, John. Thank you very much again for your time. Appreciate it very much. It's uh, John Kapal with the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. Keep fighting the good fight out there, and uh, maybe we'll talk again soon. Sounds good, Bill. Thank you very much. A California Affair is a production of WMG Public Affairs, a minority women-owned business that has been serving clients across the country and around the world since 2005. Our producer is Brian Beckman. If you enjoy the program, please like, review, follow, and subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. It really does help. I'm Bill Romanelli. Thank you for listening. Mm